I guess he used the prophet, right? Yeah, he's um, a prophet rev too. And is there a reason why prophets are the go-to sim for for film composers? It seems like. Yeah, I don't know. Like uh, the people that I know that use prophets are not film people, the band people. And the reason they use prophets is because they sound better than just about any synth out there. <laughs> Simple answer. Yeah. So maybe that's the reason for film composers. I just too. didn't know if there was some dynamic range it's capable of that makes it a synth of choice. Yeah, if there is, then I don't know about it. I, I picked it because of my friends who use it for, in bands and because of uh, James Blake. And I knew that having a synth that came from the world around the time of the synths that were used in films in the 1970s um, would be the kind of sounds that I wanted for this film. And, and in particular, The Shining, in particular, Wendy Carlos's two pieces that actually made it into The Shining from the otherwise rejected score that she wrote. same world that that same those same timbres mm -hmm. with a prophet so that's why i got it i yeah I, i'd been wanting to get a synth for a long time and oh you you, you bought it just for this, this i bought it for this yeah i mean i did i didn't i bought it from for everything but but i didn't own it before this film this was a good reason to i used go it for this it. film as an excuse <laughs> to buy got myself it. a prophet what what is it about electronic music in film that steers things sometimes. I saw it more as a guide, a kind of something to grab things and direct them in this case, in this score, more than anything else. Mm. Not so much for harmonics or melodies or anything like that, but right. just to kind of create a movement or an energy or a pulse. Yeah. Uh, how do you see the use of electronics in films, just philosophically, and the techniques that are used to add something to a character or add something to a scene. I did not know going into the Green Knights how the synths would be used. I did try a bunch of different things and I did mess around quite a bit and I tried giving them melodies in multiple different places, but it seemed like the way that they best served this story was as uh, like atmospheric structure.
I would say that the majority of synths I hear in film scores sound bad. Hmm. They don't sound like they belong to me. They sound like they should be played by other instruments. I'll give you a couple examples. Okay. There's a scene at the end of Avengers Endgame. I think it's safe to not worry about spoilers for Avengers Endgame. I think you're all right, yeah. (laughs) Iron Man is dead. Everybody's at his funeral. And uh, what has up to that point been a very large and impressive orchestral score reduces down to a high-pitched synth part for about 60 seconds, 70 seconds or something. And then the strings come back in. Um, it totally, it, it takes me out. Mm. I'm like, what is this? This doesn't belong here. Why doesn't this person know enough about synths to pick a better patch? Or why would this composer choose to put synths here in the first place? Those are the things that come to my mind. In an otherwise incredibly impressive work. Mm-hmm. I, Silvestri is one of my heroes. I think that his scores for the those last two Avengers movies are uh, just towering, like master classes in uh, arrangement and orchestration and score structure, everything, you know. Um, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, I think is the one. It's one of those first three John Williams, Harry Potters. Otherwise, absolutely brilliant score. Uh, it'll be in my mind forever. I can recall parts of it anytime. But there's a scene, they're in the library. It's supposed to be spooky and a spooky synth comes in. It's so cheesy. Again, I'm like, this person, whoever's chose this synth patch, they don't know what they're doing. So I, 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 don't, I don't know. It, it seems, seems like, like a puzzling kind of uh, move to make when you're when you have this otherwise grand orchestral yeah. feat of yeah. of composing, and then you're you're chickening out almost. Yeah, it it seems to me kind of like the orchestral composer's version of acoustic guitar. Anyone can pick up an acoustic guitar. Anyone can learn how to play three chords to play Velvet Underground songs, right? Does that mean that they can actually play the acoustic guitar or play it well? No, it does not. Any orchestral composer can go buy a synth and just press a preset button and then start playing and pretend it's like a piano, at which they may be a virtuoso. But there's a lack of uh, knowledge in the choice or maybe it's just a difference in taste, but I find it like a disappointing choice. If you want to put that synth there, then find someone who knows more about synths than you do to make choices about what kind of sounds should be happening here. Because it totally takes me out of the moment. It may just be me. Maybe other people don't care about it at all. Maybe it doesn't take them out of the moment and maybe I'm just a snob. but I wish to that end that people using synths would treat them the way they would treat any orchestral instruments with that same respect. And I don't hear it. But as a tool 
for, like you say, atmosphere or to kind of create some sort of underlying kind of uh, motivation or subliminal motivation or something, it's, that's where you see that it can be useful. Oh, I think it, it could be useful in any of these scenarios. I think it could be useful as a lead insert. The, um, the title theme from Loki, the TV show, it's either all synth or like 90% synth. It's brilliant. It's great. in that way or whatever way I used it on Green Knight for atmosphere because that seemed to work best for Green Knight it probably isn't my go-to for melodies or big harmonies unless the images tell me that that's what they want but it's not what I'm gonna choose first because I'm that's not my background I would probably ask someone else ask a friend who's better at it if, if that was gonna be my choice I imagine you had to do some research about medieval time instruments I did for this film I did and I imagine that wasn't a go-to until and I don't know if it is now but each David Lowry film seems to give you a new opportunity to try on something different musically yeah and it's in, especially in this case it seems like and I was looking at some of the names of these old instruments yeah uh, is it the, how do you say this, the viel? Is oh, that, the viel? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure. Like an old old version of a violin. Is that what that is? Okay. Yeah, I, we did not use that on this. Okay. Uh, on this score. But yeah, that's like a... That's old, one of those. Old ancestor of a, of a violin or something like that. Yeah. And what about the psaltery? Oh, the, like a, a dulcimer. Yeah, um, didn't use that on this either, but... Uh, I've seen it, like my parents have used it in church services. My parents used to do, my dad did this like medieval feast service in church once a year for, I don't know, like four or five years in a row or something when I was in high school, junior high, high school. Pretty sure he used a psaltery for that, whatever that song feast was. And what is that, what is it, what it's kind just of, what like is a, it related to? Uh, like a dulcimer, like a hammered dulcimer. Okay. It's almost rectangular shape, but it usually has curved around the ends, and it has two, I think, two or three strings on it, or maybe there are different versions. And then you hit it with uh, like a, a wooden tong, and it's similar to the way that you would uh, a dulcimer. Mm -hmm. So what instruments did you acquaint yourself with on this film that you hadn't had experience using before? There were, there were three. There was uh, the nickel harpa, which we talked about before, medieval Swedish instrument. It was because of the witch that I became interested in that instrument. And you can't get them at Guitar Center, so I had one built for me 
there's a luthier in Wisconsin named Earl Holtzman who makes them, makes nickel harpas. And uh, he built me one in 2019, I think, as I knew that the Green Knight was, was coming, or maybe 2018. Anyway, from a string coming from a string background, it wasn't extremely difficult. I mean, it's it's not an easy instrument to play, but I had a huge head start, so it's not like I had to spend six months in intense training to know how to play a nickel harpa. Because of the violin stuff that I'd already done, it was not that hard to translate those skills. And then the second thing is a a, a recorder, a bass recorder. I got one called a Petzold recorder invented by a German guy in the 1970s as a cheaper alternative to Baroque recorders, which are very expensive to buy and own, especially the big ones. And, and so he started making these, these cheaper ones that are boxy and they don't have, they don't have open finger holes like most recorders do. They have dampers that you depress with, with a finger, like a clarinet would or, or an oboe. And I, yeah, I got one of those for this film, and then we hired a recorder quartet to play um, in London. And I had to do a bunch of research for that. And then I had to do a bunch of research on Middle English poetry, or Middle English speaking, for all the lyrics mm -hmm. that, I, that I ended up writing in Middle English. That's not something that I knew about before. I think the thing that that has stuck with me the most since then is the way in which Middle English is much more influenced um, by Scandinavian languages than modern English is, and the pronunciations of thing, things sound very Scandinavian, and consequently a little bit more melodic than modern English sounds to me, um, which made it great for writing music with. Um, but it's not something that I knew before we started. I didn't, un I didn't understand the evolution of the language before then. It seems to me like this, that's the area of music that was used for gathering, communion, uh, secular activity back then. Yeah. Where, where people got together outside of the church, where, whereas in the church, as we were saying, it's mainly choral. Yeah. Y music. Yeah. Uh, and ma I don't know if organs or things like that were used back then, but nope. not, no, I guess not, not. Not not yet invented. Yeah. That's that was a silly question. No, uh, it's not. I, who who would know that? Yeah. <laughs> why why do I know that? There's <laughs> no reason is. that anyone outside of this field should know that. Not a silly question. But in all of these Arthur Arthurian tales on on film yeah that, that kind of percussive flute recorder string music seems to come out when people are together and they're rejoicing or they're or they're gathering for some celebration yeah seems totally like. yeah 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 that's i'm sure that's influenced me because i've seen a lot of those movies i'm sure it's in the back of my mind like um when i'm looking for solutions of what kind of music to write it's probably something in the back of my mind that's like you should do this because you saw it work before and you liked it or something like that.
I do, I do think that having these parents in church music and singing in a choir when I was a little kid um, has influenced this score for The Green Knight more than almost any other score I've done. It was a huge influence for The Exorcist as well, mm-hmm. which is even more about the church than, than this film is. But yes, I do have a leg up. And, and in particular, because my parents are, are Episcopal, and that's the church that I went to growing up, which is uh, Anglican, like the American version of the Church of England. So not only is it directly related to the portrayal of the church in this particular movie, but also the Episcopal Mass uses a lot of music that has roots in medieval sources. And so when I was a little kid, the things that I would sing for the offertory anthem or the piece of music before the reading of of the day, those things were all medievally based melodies. And I'm sure that that was in there when I was writing this stuff. So it surfaced mysteriously, maybe, in ways that you, you, you didn't know that it was still in there. Maybe it came, some of it came, came up. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about that church music from my childhood. But it's definitely in there forever. Like, when I was asked, Mil- Milan Records, who's putting out the soundtrack for The Green Knight, asked me to make a playlist of music that influenced the score. And... I put a bunch of film music on there, including one of those tracks from The Shining, something from Under the Skin. Um, but I also included this hymn called A Stable Lamp is Lighted that has nothing to do with The Green Knight. And I did not listen to it in preparation for The Green Knight, but it's one of my favorite hymns of all time. And I learned it. When I was, I, I learned it when I was a child. Like, I probably sang it for the first time when I was five or six years old, and even back then it was one of my favorite hymns. So it's just always in there, and I knew, like, in in some way, subconsciously, it was influencing the choices that I... I think it influences 90% of the musical choices that I make in small ways, like those pieces of music that are favorites from childhood, from early childhood. They just imprint on us, and they stay there. Yeah, like we were saying earlier, yeah. Yeah. Another score that made use of hymnals that I didn't even know were hymnals or didn't sound like them to me in the form that they were in, I guess, was Sound of Metal. Oh, I haven't seen Sound of Metal. So the composer's names are Abraham Martyr and Nicholas Becker, and I think they're new to scoring. Yeah, I don't know those guys. You, you will definitely appreciate that film. In, okay, in, I really like Riz Ahmed. Yeah. 
the way they use sound and music that suggests the loss of hearing and a more insular inward kind of vibration of sound yeah. as opposed to the normal I don't know the word for it but the fidelity uh, of normal sound sure and everything is kind of suffocated and sounds like it's under a pillow and but it's it's done to an amazing effect and it's my greatest nightmare what that happening to me oh gosh losing, yeah. losing my hearing yeah there was a time a couple months ago where I I kind of couldn't decompress my ear and I was and it was right after I saw sound of metal I was like freaking out like this is not happening to me Ter terrifying yeah. yeah so maybe you shouldn't see that <laughs> no I'll watch it I meant I meant to watch it when it came out I think I was working on a billion things or something which seems like now you are you're gonna be working on a billion things from now till <laughs> you stop making music till I stop I'm trying to like pace myself I don't want to burn myself out um, but I'm working on Peter Pan right now and that is, that's got to be enormous it's such a mammoth task that I it's easy to convince myself to say no to things other things that um, come my way because I know how much time it will take to make Peter Pan yeah it's just it's gonna be almost non-stop music and very big, very complex orchestral music, and that stuff takes the most time to make. Um, just to fill in all the parts takes the most time. Is it on the scale similar to Peach Dragon, but yeah. not not conceptually, but? Yeah, uh, just like that, but bigger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are parts of Pete's Dragon, the music in Pete's Dragon, there are parts that are played by a very large orchestra and sung by a very by a 32 person choir I was about to say very large choir but I don't it's all relative right but um yeah there there are parts of the Pete's Dragon score that are quite big and they're played by a big ensemble but there are parts of the Pete's Dragon score that are like acoustic guitar and a solo violin and I'm sure there will be some intimate musical moments in Peter Pan too because there always are in David's movies but I think this one is going to be like almost non-stop orchestra that's how it looks any, right now anyway uh -huh. at that point that i'm at right now right um so yeah big big music takes a long time there was a there's that cue at the end of peach dragon that which i have to admit i had not seen before this and i'm so glad i did no matter how old you are i think there's that kid in you that responds to those kinds of movies and and again you you connect to the movies like that that you saw when you were younger yeah and have that same it awakens all those kind of childhood feelings of awe and yeah and larger than life things and and was that like your biggest kind of home run cue or theme that you ever wrote at the end of that movie it's kind of like you're swinging you're you're going all the way on that one right yeah. you're really yeah you're really trying to hit it out of the park it was like, um, if you grow up watching Disney films, then there's some kind of expectation in your mind that there will be big music in a Disney film. And so I was just like, Daniel, you have to write big music because this is the film that it is. There's just no question about it. It needs a huge theme.
but also the whole score for Pete's Dragon feels very similar to the original ideas that David and I had for what it should be. So it's not like it got Frankensteined, not like it got um, noted to death by by Disney folks. They they really gave us a lot of leeway to make what we wanted to make. And so when I listen back to it now, I hear like something that feels very representative of the original ideas that I had when I was working on it in a bedroom. So yes, very big melody. I love big melodies though. I think they, they come to me pretty naturally, especially as a violin player. The violin is, I think, one of the cockier instruments of the orchestra. <laughs> show-off so, instrument. It's a show-off instrument. The best players are, are often a bit cocky about <laughs> their abilities. Not all, Some of them are total sweethearts, but, but it takes a certain kind of confidence and stamina to pull off because the instrument can be played so virtuosically because you can write things that are incredibly difficult to play you know it, it you would be impressed with yourself if you could learn how to do that and because there's so many violin concertos as opposed to viola concertos or or even flute concertos there's like there's so much music written for the violin as a solo instrument and and so i think because of that because of my training as a violinist it's just in there, like, melodies first, and all the stuff that I learned to play when I was learning to play the violin is all, almost all, m melodically based. So that's how my brain works. Well, you, you know, you have, you have to rise to the occasion in a moment like that, right? Really yeah. kind of hit that moment where the tears start appearing in the corners <laughs> of your eyes. I, leading up to that, where he says goodbye to the dragon, where yeah. Pete says goodbye to the dragon, yeah. I'm saying to myself, all right, am I gonna is, am I gonna cry here? Is, am I, is are the waterworks gonna start? Is this gonna happen? I don't th I don't know. I mean, I'm feeling a little vulnerable right now, maybe. And then it builds, it builds, and you know it's coming. Mm, yeah. And then lo and behold, there they go. That moment where Pete's saying goodbye to the dragon. You don't know that you're gonna get that final scene where you see all the dragons together flying off and t into the sky. No, that's right. So yeah, I start crying. And then I get a FaceTime call and I've got to reject the FaceTime call because it got tears streaming down my face. And I'm like, I can't take this call right now because... <laughs> yeah, so you I... got me. Your music had a lot to do with that. Uh, it, it really, I've, it's one of those moments where you've got to really strike it. You've got to meet the, the emotion of that kind of scene. Yeah. I cried a lot when I was writing that music. I'm a big softie, so me it doesn't too. take much for me to cry. But it is strange to me that I can make myself cry. Oh, with, really? With my own music. Oh. Like I'm writing the music for this scene that you're talking about, and then I watch what I've just done, watch it and listen to it with the music that I've just written, and then it makes me cry some more. And then I have to work, keep working on it, and then just keep crying and work some more and then cry some more. Yeah. But that's an indicator that it's working, right? I think so. It feels awfully self-important to me, but it happens to me all the time where music that I am working on for a film, for scenes, um, makes me cry. Not just my music, but the entire experience with my music included in it does make me cry. So, yeah, I guess that, that, is, that is an indicator that it's working. Unless it's uh, plucky comedy, in which case uh, yeah. I'm not doing right. the right thing. Another score and pieces of music that really moved me 
and to tears also. And I was moved to a lot of different emotions uh, unexpectedly when I watched a ghost story. You've mentioned that it struck a chord with you tonally with the subject matter and what was being explored in that film existentially, I guess. Yeah, that, very much that, so. That really made the music come easy? I still think about that movie a lot. I feel like of any of the movies that we've done, Green Knight and, and Ghost Story are the most closely related in terms of these it's a combination of an epic journey and a very intimate and introspective examination of the human condition at the same time and yes the music came easy yeah one of the quickest scores i've ever written like pure inspiration basically pure inspiration david and i had some conversations there was one or two things near, at the beginning we were like well this doesn't quite work i like i think one of the original ideas for the movie was like can we draw on um leave it can we draw on uh leave it all right buddy it's all right yeah one, one of the original ideas that david and i had was to reference carpenter movies like oh, okay. like escape from new york you know that kind of score and we tried that a little bit at the beginning of a ghost story and it just didn't quite fit it didn't quite work it, the movie was uh i think that's when we learned that the movie was less scary and more haunting and it would require something not so carpenter synth-esque um but beyond besides that yeah really easy to find the things we were looking for turning in first drafts and, and and those worked just right off the bat. There's a piece of music in the middle of the film when Rooney Mara's character leaves the house, she finally moves away, she packs up her car and she drives away and the ghost is stuck in the house watching her leave. Very sad. Clutching my heart right now. <laughs> yeah. And um and I wrote that piece and I sent it to David and he was like Oh, this is, uh, this is perfect. We need to put this everywhere. So then I retroactively took that um, melody, the melody from that cue and found other places for it to go earlier in the film that would help build to that moment. Mm -hmm. Well, Little Notes is the one that, I listen to that piece of music a lot. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you there's piece, score pieces that you return to a lot. There are. Yeah, that's one that I'm. That, it's very important to me that piece of music. Oh, thanks. Yeah, man. that's the first one that I wrote for the movie.
divine kind of moment of writing for you or because it, it really does come across that way it, 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 it the way that it starts that movie yeah I mean, the first it, it really is what the first eight minutes of the movie is that piece right i think so right I yeah think maybe not quite sure. that long maybe like, not that long like five five to six minutes yeah something like that yeah <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm trying to remember now i i wrote the the main melody part on piano 
just messing around with different chords and, and different lead notes for a night until I found what is in the film and then I transferred it to violin. I probably wrote it in a couple days. The film is so sad and so musical and those are my two comfort zones. <laughs> yeah. Show me Sadness something, and music. Show me something sad and I will show you some music that goes there. Yeah. <laughs> well, you do. You do. Yeah, I don't know why. I think life is just... Uh, <laughs> life is full of sadness. There's so much sadness in life. And, and so that kind of sorrow feels very honest to me. Yeah. To my experience. And, and I, I find it easy to create music that reflects that kind of sadness. Um, and, and that, that bittersweet quality to life where there's, there's beauty in the experience um, that is accompanied often by intense grief from time to time. Yeah, that meeting point of sadness and music, there's a catharsis there that is unmatched, really. I mm. think that's that's mm -hmm. the trigger for me a lot of times that that's kind of the way in to getting deep into my what i have to sort out and a lot of tangled up emotions is when when i hear sad music and yeah you know me too and reflect I, yeah because where where is where is music it's not um hanging on a wall and it's not a person dancing across a stage or someone in front of a camera it, it's like it's it's here it's there it's it's in here it's in here or here where is it there's something about that intangible i guess you can't see me point i just pointed to my head and my ears and my heart and the air asking where music is but yeah that that intangible quality to it makes it somehow transcend other ways we experience and process the world around us yeah at least for, for sure yeah well well said i i remember leaving that movie my breathing was different like i couldn't mm. catch my breath mm. i don't know i there's a handful of experiences when i remember leaving a theater and viscerally what was going on with me after watching a film and I'll never forget that. I went to see it at the AMC Lincoln Square Theater mm. where I live. Mm -hmm. It's like three minutes from Central Park. And I walked directly to Central Park. I, I needed to, to kind of gather myself wow. after that. Wow. And I'm really, I'm just, I will be forever grateful to you and David Lowry for, for that kind of emotional reckoning that, that happened at the end of that and there's so many things there's so many things about it it's just that loss memory distance the end of life missing people it covers a lot it of just, ground <laughs> of the life experience i think yeah it's um he's got an uncanny ability to to distill what it is about being human that gives meaning to experience. 
I don't see it happening very many other places in the way that he can make it do. And, and, and he just gives me opportunity after opportunity to explore those same ideas musically. And he barely puts any dialogue in his movies, so he gives me opportunities to make music that will often be right up front and will be responsible for helping tell that story in a way that is extremely challenging and extremely gratifying when I feel like we get it right. Yeah. Is what you like about score music that part of it as compared to recording for your for your band and I mean is that something that it introduces you to things that you examine more from those perspectives? The the difference that I see um, the most value in is that my job is to help fulfill someone else's artistic vision when it's a film. When it's my band, it's my own vision. And I, I'm me, like I already know myself and, and I, well, I know parts of myself who, who really knows themselves, but I know, I know more of myself and my own brain than I do of David's brain. Mm -hmm. And so getting that other perspective of life and someone else's storytelling about life experience, even when it's someone like David with whom I share such, uh, so many similarities, aesthetically speaking, it's still someone else's story. And, and so I'm getting a little window into a, a very intimate kind of creative expression of, of life. So that's what I get, like collaborating with someone else in that way. I get to see someone else's story, someone else's brain, someone else's ideas. Um, I do really miss touring. And yeah, I was going to say, how does it inform your, the music that you make for Dark Rooms? stuff that we're working on now like we, we finished an EP we put out an EP in February 
and we're about to put out another EP, and then we're gonna we're gonna do one more uh, at the very end of the year. And all of these EPs are orchestral. Mm. Um, that's not something we've done before, and it's undoubtedly influenced by the film stuff that I've been doing the last few years. And my my vision for this new music that we're working on now is more related to my film stuff than anything else that we've done. Um, so yeah, the worlds are combining a bit. I be, I'm really curious to hear that. So <laughs> it sounds yeah. like it's going to be a different palette th with this new stuff? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still like vocally still the same, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it's still, there are four of us in the band and everybody's still in it very much. And the sounds that we were making before, like a lot of those sounds are still in there, but then there's an orchestra happening as well. So uh, it feels very different to me. And I have no idea how we'll, how we'll perform it. You know, I guess we'll just hire an orchestra every town where we play. <laughs> That's what we'll do. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm looking. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, me uh, too. I I hope we do get to play that music for people someday. It sounds like you're going to be tied up with Peter Pan and and Wendy for a while. We record the orchestra in March of 2022. Okay. So that's like my full time job until then. Yeah. After Peter Pan, I don't know. Maybe I'll take a little bit. Probably not. I probably won't take a break. Probably just do whatever work happens next yeah um yeah i i feel very lucky that people keep asking me to do stuff um, not surprising <laughs> well well thank you i i uh for someone who did not set out to do this job i i feel like i've been given a crazy amount of opportunities to 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 test my abilities and and it feels uh like a job that I am naturally suited for because of who I am and my experience and my background. Um, well, so it I, seems I, I'm grateful. To it be seems here. like working with David Lowry is like maybe too good to be true in the in, <laughs> in the spectrum of of experiences that can happen with you know composing a score for a project. I mean, does it spoil you for other things because? You have this kind of tight-knit group all every time and you know one another and does it make other working on other projects kind of uh, less uh, fun the first non-david lowry feature that i worked on um went terribly oh wow because i was so spoiled right i just didn't know what it was like when you don't share someone's vision 100 percent it wasn't, I, I say it went terribly, like there was, it wasn't a nightmare or anything. It's not like I wanted to quit music and it's not like the film was ruined. I, I just, I went in only knowing what it's like when you're working with the people that see things the exact way that you do. Um, and how often does that happen? Almost never. Yeah. And, and often, the different perspectives being forced to work with each other is what makes it great. So 
yes, I've been spoiled. <laughs> and yes, sometimes it's difficult to find stuff with other people the way that uh, David and I have found stuff so easily. But sometimes that difficulty leads to really wonderful breakthroughs. So that song that Casey Affleck's character was playing for Rooney Mara. Yeah. That's your song. That's my song. That's, that's Dark Room's I Get Overwhelmed. Right. And my question to you is, is that the second best listen to this song on my headphones scene of all time after Garden State? <laughs> when Natalie Portman plays new slang for Zach Braff. <laughs> is it? Gosh, I feel like I haven't seen enough. Like, I don't know of any other ones. Me neither. I think, I think those are the two. <laughs> so by default, we're the second best. Yes. I mean, seriously, those two listen to this song on my headphones scenes, they really work. Yeah, people should film that more. <laughs> I think so. I think, you know, your band got a big up on that. Uh, yeah. The Shins got a big up on in from... Blew them up. Garden State, yeah. so maybe this is a, a function of films that yeah. should be explored more. Yeah. Listen, man, it's been really cool to talk to you. Yeah, same. It's been great, and you're, you're really um, one of my favorite composers. And oh, thanks, Charles. Thanks so much. You, you could probably tell I could talk forever about this stuff. I didn't even ask you about Old Man and the Gun and <laughs> the jazz and everything, which I'm so curious about, but it's been a, a real joy following you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Be, be good, Daniel. Yeah, you too. Take care.